Hey there, I'm Akash Bhatt and welcome back to another episode of the TCVC, where I sit down with angel investors and venture capitalists investing in tech startups in India. When I started this podcast, little did I realize how much fun and fulfilling this experience would be for me. And boy, did I underestimate how much I'd learn about investing in venture capital in India. I hope you're having as much fun listening to these great investors as I am having speaking to them. Well, today is no different. I have with me Bhaskar Majumdar. Bhaskar is founder and managing partner at Unicorn India Ventures. In the past decade, he has established himself as a well-regarded early-stage investor, especially in the UK and in India. He has held senior corporate positions with Times of India, Z Telefilms, and Altavista UK. Bhaskar is also a serial entrepreneur with exits under his belt. And he brings great perspectives as an operator and an investor. I had a great time picking his brain about Indian venture capital and trying to understand how Unicorn makes investments when they think about technology startups. So let's jump straight into the episode and listen to some of his great insights. Here is Bhaskar. Welcome to the podcast, Bhaskar. It's a pleasure to have you. How's it going? Yeah, it's going pretty fine. Thank you, Akash. Well, I want to start off by asking you to share your journey and arrive at the motivation behind wanting to invest in startups and being in venture capital. How does that whole story play out? Uh, just to quickly give you a synopsis, uh, Akash, I my journey uh, to becoming a VC and an investor as such has been through a path where I have been a corporate exec across three theaters uh, in Asia, Europe, and US uh, in the field of uh, media. You know, I used to work for pretty large corporates, uh, and I was on the board of a listed entity. Subsequent to that, I had two technology businesses, uh, both in the area of media tech, if, if you will. Uh, one business I started in 2000, another one in 2008. And both these businesses I uh, exited out. Uh, and subsequent to that, you know, I started investing my prop money through a family office structure. Uh, and then in 2015, I started the fund. So my journey has been a bit classical journey in which it's been an exec to an entrepreneur to a family office prop money to now a VC through, you know, regulated entities. And, uh, you know, for me, the last 20 odd years has been about uh, early stage startups. I've seen the system evolve uh, globally and especially in India when you know the first venture I started there were literally a handful of us there were just two VCs or three VCs within India to the situation today where in India it's the third largest number of startups the shortest time for startups to hit unicorns a lot of locally available LP money uh, which was unheard of even three or four years ago so I've been very lucky to be a part of this whole change. Well, that's an amazing journey. Thanks for sharing. 
we're seeing more and more operators and entrepreneurs turning investors is the barrier to entry lessened or why do you feel lps are backing more entrepreneur turn investors today than ever before you know it's a it's a very interesting question and i can give you uh, the indian context uh, while wearing a, a a global hat i mean early stage investment globally uh, has been driven mostly by entrepreneurs ex entrepreneurs in some cases even failed entrepreneurs rather than people from pure financial services i bankers pe guys coming into this early stage ecosystem and this has been true in us for well over two and a half three decades in europe it's been true for a couple of decades india now that is picking up the main reason i would think is because obviously the ecosystem itself wasn't developed in india so you didn't have very many entrepreneurs who were exiting to see what next to do obviously india has been an entrepreneurial country but those entrepreneurs were entrepreneurs for life if you will and they were building businesses for their families for the second generation so they were not entrepreneurs in what we understand in today's context of you know building a business taking an exit and then looking at either the next venture or starting to get into investment so this in a in the whole story of the nation of india is a very new event i would say it's been about a decade and a half old so it's now that you have entrepreneurs who have exited businesses and turning into and turning into vcs and turning into investors and that's why obviously in this whole early stage system more and more people of my ilk are coming there and as they are coming into the fray obviously you have the local indian lps or even the global lps whose preference has always been for entrepreneur turned investors uh, to back them more in the early stage ecosystem that is very interesting i'm going to dive straight in and explore a couple more topics around venture capital with you i'm very curious to understand your opinion on the evolution of venture capital as an asset class in india and if there are any insights you could share about the current health of the vc market in the country uh, let me quickly uh give you a background of how the vc market in india has evolved uh and uh, then i can you know talk to you about where i see uh, the future where the present i guess we all know but where i see uh, the future trends taking going ahead in the vc market if you really step back and you know as an entrepreneur i've been involved literally with the evolution on, uh, alongside my businesses of the vc market in the late 90s was when even the first time you heard the terminology of vc in india before that literally there were no vcs so the first vcs were a couple of american vcs that was there draper was one of the first to have been there in india you had a couple of uh, indian uh, government spun organizations who were uh, looking at the venture space in india but the real shot in the arm came if you will where when couple of indian americans who used to work in large vcs in america got an allocation from their parent companies and came and started to invest in india that was in 99 2000 or period and that was a period when the first mushrooming of a large number of startups did happen in india you know that was if you will the 
first wave. The company I exited out, Recreate Solutions, was also part of that wave of companies. And then, you know, in 2000 till about mid 2004, 2005, there was a lull. And, you know, obviously the dot-com crash affected globally everybody else. What also then started to happen was two distinct strain of thinking within the market development. One was you had the American VCs, you know, Sequoia, Axel, coming and acquiring Indian GPs and rebranding themselves with those, with, with, with the f- uh, global franchise names. So this was one thing that happened around 2004, 5, 6. The other very interesting thing that happened was within India at that point in time, you know, the industry wasn't matured into, oh, sorry, matured is the wrong word. The industry wasn't, uh, uh, didn't have a value chain of its own. So, you know, for example, the first check in those days used to be a couple of million dollars. You know, there wasn't an angel pre-series A, series A concept. It was basically getting a check, doing the business, getting the next check. So that evolution started to happen around 2007, 8, 9, when you had a couple of large angel networks coming into play. Mumbai Angels was there. My partner in the fund, Anil Joshi, was the pivot around which uh, you know Mumbai Angels ran. He ran Mumbai Angels for three or four years, invested in over 50-odd companies. So there were a couple of these angel networks, and that again led to a further spiraling of the whole ecosystem. And the final change, as we see, it started to happen around 13, 14, when first generation VCs is what, you know, I would call unicorn. And there's a bunch of seven, eight, ten of us who started to come in and play. So we were not part of any global franchise. We were homegrown from that sense. First generation VCs raising money on our own within India. And obviously, this whole move was spiraled to a great extent by the uh, emergence of the LP within India as well. So the where we presently are is basically from 2013 till about 2021 is where now you see this large number of early stage VCs, later stage VCs, all homegrown, you know, not a part of franchise, which has come for the first time. Coming to the latter part of your question, Akash is where we are. I think it's a very buy-in market, as you well know. A lot of monies is going into it. I think a lot of froth and fluff that had built into the system, uh, which always happens whenever uh, whenever there is a lot of energy within a particular arena, has started to go out. I think 2014, 15, 16, there was a lot of froth. 17 onwards, there's a lot of rationalization that started to happen. Two distinct uh, key takeaway points I can tell you is, you know, while you think of startups, think of early stage, the imagery is of 20 something, early 30 kids, you know, coming out of fresh from the institutes and doing things. But the average age in our portfolio of, you know, 18 odd companies is 41. So seriously, there are execs coming out after 10, 15, 20 years of work experience, coming and starting their own businesses. This is a new phenomenon from 2016, 17. And more and more these people are being backed. 
So that is one interesting place where the uh, VC market and the startup system is gone. Secondly, you've this asset class is a completely established asset class now within the Indian family office structure. And within the last two or three years, family offices are keeping allocations aside for this asset class. Real exits have started to happen. Family offices have started to get monies back. So this this asset class is evolving from a from every uh, perspective, you know, more and more differentiated GPs coming into fray, the LP community is becoming larger, investments are taking place in, uh, you know, different types of entrepreneurs. So for me, the VC market in India has just scratched the surface and there's a long, long road ahead. So when you talk about the evolution of the Indian VC industry and you, you mentioned the first generation of venture capital firms and then now you have many other firms who have come across um, who, have, who, are, who are now deploying funds very actively both on the early stage side as well as growth and later stages. How do you see yourselves at Unicorn? How do you see this development at Unicorn? Is it something um, that is inherently a threat uh, as in it's a very competitive market or is it more about the opportunity to collaborate with more VCs and at, by doing so you're kind of mitigating or or kind of eliminating or reducing risk? You know, early stage globally is very uh, cooperative uh, and uh, it's, a, it's, it's, it's basically very rightly, like you said, working together and mitigating risks. Unlike later stage PE buyout funds, which is winner takes all aggressive stand, going hard, trying to keep the comp competition out. So globally, the early stage is a much more cooperative environment. And I guess India is no different. You know, of course, it's uh, there is a uh, there is a rush for good deals. There is always a bit of underlying uh, shoulder pushing to get the good deals between uh, the VCs, early stage VCs, funds. But I don't think it's an aggressive uh, environment. Uh, what also happens, and I can give you the unicorn story, is, you know, everyone, well, not everyone, I mean, the funds sort of find a home for themselves within this ecosystem. For example, we have positioned ourselves as uh, the first institutional friends, uh, the first institutional fund. So, you know, typically we come in after a friends and family round. Uh, and then we follow the companies right through. So although we may deploy about a couple of million dollars in one tranche into a company, we will never do it at a, just merely going into a series A. We would have had to have done the first, you know, 300,000, 400,000 before we would do the couple of million dollars. So that's our thesis, which may be very different from a typical Series A guy with whom we would cooperate, who would be a lead in a Series A round for us. So each one has evolved a thesis of their own. Also, you know, there is a comfort within the uh, zone within which you play. So we, st we stay away from B2C. We invest in, you know, mostly in, digital platforms, uh, mostly within uh, digitizing of supply chains, digitizing of uh, existing processes, uh, and a lot of B2B2C 
type of things we do. So, you know, that again is a zone for us. We and, uh, you know, later stage VCs know that we are pretty involved within the businesses we invest in. So we evolve into a sort of cooperative, larger uh, development pool, if you will, rather than a, a very cutthroat environment. But I guess that's the rule of the VC business globally. Well, I'm glad you brought up the topic of thesis. How do VCs come up with an investment thesis? What is the thought process behind it? You know, primarily, I think uh, I, I can speak more from the early stage part of it rather than later stage VCs. I think early stage VCs, a lot of thesis comes out from what the GPs themselves are comfortable with. And I guess that's what should be the main driver rather than trying to, you know, follow the crowd. Uh, fundamentally, mindset wise, VCs who bag B2C businesses need to have a very different mindset from VCs who are, you know, pushing towards a B2B or a B2B2C or platform businesses where the thesis is more, you know, reach the ARRs fast push towards a break even and then scale the business up rather than, you know, large taking a pie of the market share and burning money for customer acquisition as the B2C story is. So the the, the market, the, 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 the DNA of the GPs to a great extent should determine, I think, the thesis of the uh, early stage funds. Having said that, uh, you know, that is only the main driver after that obviously which geography you're playing in what is the state of the geography where do you see the larger market conditions all of these determine where about the thesis of the company and this is more determining the thesis in terms of uh, uh, the domains if you will then different vcs have different thesis around the investment philosophy for example we have particular thesis on the stage. We don't accept in an odd case here and there. We don't back pure ideas. Typically, we come in after the business has been in business for about uh, a year, year and a half. The co-founding team would have had worked for about close to two years. Uh, you know, the basic MVP is out. That That's the stage around which we evolve our thesis. Then on the softer points, we also have certain investment philosophies where you know we tend not to back single founders we stay we tend to stay away from uh, co-founders from the same family uh, we tend to stay away from you know co-founders who have had earlier bad experiences together so these are some of the broad you know softer side issues and one of the things which we actively do is before we sign the first check, we stay engaged with the founding team for about three to six months. And that's the time where we sort of take a view on the team, their receptivity to ideas, to change, uh, and a lot on the softer points. Because early stage, as I keep saying, and it's a very hackneyed and common uh, hearsay, but early stage is all about investing in the individual's because the business plans are constantly morphing. No, I couldn't agree more with that. That's very interesting. And staying on the topic of um, 
adding value, what roles do you think VCs should play when they invest in a company? What are the ideal ways in which VCs can create value first at the seed stage and later at Series A? You know, uh, I think at seed stage, uh, for the VCs to be successful at seed stage, you know, they have to uh, they have to provide much more than the mere capital, and uh, and have to stay engaged with the companies uh, when it comes to portfolio management. Again, this is a very tricky question. You know, there's a that that. You've got to understand the DNA of the entrepreneur and, of course, the business for you to be able to add value. For example, there's a lot of difference in the type of value you would add to a 20-something first-time entrepreneur compared to the value you would add to, let's say, a mid-40s, 20, 25 years senior-level exec who's left his job to start his first entrepreneur. And therefore, you know, it's a fine line. It's it's a very mature uh, portfolio management and adding value is a very matured skill. As I keep telling my team, it's uh, more a art than a science. And one has to be able to understand how much to add value, when to withdraw, because at the end of the day, it's the entrepreneur's call. And a lot of VCs, a lot of early stage uh, VCs, and first-time VCs, who, especially those who've not been founders of businesses, make the mistake of sometimes taking over ownership of the businesses. No business can succeed if the entrepreneur heart and soul is not in it, because whatever a VC might do and say, it is finally the entrepreneur who can make it happen. And no one takes as much pain as the entrepreneur. So it's a fine line for a VC to be involved in the business but not to take over ownership, to guide the entrepreneur, but not to be seen as being his boss or mentor. And I think that comes only with maturity and which is why more and more you are seeing entrepreneur turned VCs to be more successful than, you know, pure play financial VCs, especially in the early stage. As you go down the uh, uh, funding cycle, the life, the the role between a VC and the entrepreneur changes a lot. Uh, it's a very interesting thing, you know, being an early stage VC, you also have to realign your relationship with the firm as the firm go, grows through its uh, funding rounds. You know, we've got f- companies where we've gone into Series C. Obviously, these companies were in, they were in the pre-Series A. We were totally integrally involved. But at a Series C stage where you have much larger VCs, much more monies have gone into the business. Our roles are, if you will, just to be there on the board, obviously provide the direction, be the sounding board of the entrepreneur, but well aware that in a loose sort of way, you have passed your sell-by date. And this is, again, something which a lot of early stage VCs struggle to, uh, to to acclimatize themselves to this change, you know, that takes place. So the relationship with, between a VC and an entrepreneur is a very, very dynamic relationship, very matured relationship, and has to constantly evolve with time. No, I love that, especially the part where you mentioned portfolio support 
is an art and not a science. I totally agree with that. You mentioned the role or the over-involvement of investors in early stage companies, uh, and that could come in many forms, one of which is um, equity dilution. So while optimizing for success, how do you think founders should protect themselves from equity dilution while raising money in the early rounds? You know, this is a, there's no right or wrong answer to this, Akash. Uh, Sometimes I've seen founders who are so caught up with the numbers that they don't land up getting the right investor or sometimes even getting an investor. You know, as I keep saying, obviously, don't go in with investors who are being silly. But, you know, go in with the investor of a percentage point, few percentage points difference in the bigger scheme of things doesn't really matter. Because at the end of the day, these are all just numbers in the initial part. And uh, I've seen a number of founders, you know, who will nickel and dime over a couple of percentages and lose a good investor in the bargain. Having said that, there are again, especially in an evolving system like India, there are people who believe they are investors and they, you know, if you ask me, act pretty silly with the entrepreneurs where they put in some monies for inordinate equity. They take, if you will, management fees out of that. And in the end, what they don't realize is all of this means zilch. If the entrepreneur and the business, if the entrepreneur isn't motivated enough for the business to scale up, which is why, again, there is no right or wrong answer. Uh, It is just being pragmatic and hitting the chemistry between the entrepreneur and the early investor. If that is right, if the, you know, thinking about the growth of the company is right, percentage points don't really matter for me from both the sides. Well, that's very interesting. And the second question that I had was with respect to portfolio support and time allocation. Do you spend more time with the winners and maximize your return? Or do you spend more time with with your portfolios, with, with, your, with your startups in the portfolio, which are not performing uh, really well and help them do better and possibly some sort of an exit? What is your take on that? Mm, it's an it's, it's, it's a extremely interesting question. I, again, think uh, this depends upon the uh, DNA of the firm. And I can speak from the unicorn perspective. Uh, And sometimes we've been questioned by some very good friends of ours from the VC community about what we do. We do tend to spend a lot of time with companies which are not performing well to enable them to turn around. While we understand that the VC game is a portfolio game and it is only two or three businesses that will give you the alpha. But still, I think somewhere the role of the VC is even to handhold businesses where there is a possibility of a turnaround. Uh, And in our case, I think at least there have been instances of two or three businesses where we've been able to turn around. 
in case of one even get a, a decent exit uh, in case of one turn around and you know scale it up substantially and in one case try to turn around and fail so you know i'm not saying every time it will be a success but we do as a firm spend a lot of time with uh, the laggards if you will unlike some vcs whose approach is you know a very portfolio approach that okay if they are lagging behind so be it i'd push my attention more towards the uh, winners also the other part of this is where the fund is within the life cycle of the fund so you know first 2 3 years you tend to spend equal time with all then sort of the portfolio churns itself and you know who the 3 4 winners are and you know as i said in some of these winners you spend different times if they've gone through multiple multiple rounds of funding and then as early stage your role gets limited so then you are spending time with the ones who are if you will in in between as i say because they have the potential to go on top but they are still not there the fine the last few the real laggards after a four year cycle in the fund you know they are not going to give you the returns and so you tend to start spending time so to answer your question it is a combination of where you are in the fund cycle and also uh the dna and the philosophy of the gps of the fund well i totally agree with that early stage mid stage or later stage i believe that stage is just a proxy word for risk basically it comes down to at the end of the day what kind of risk somebody is comfortable in underwriting so a follow up to that is how do you evaluate risk um it is a very difficult uh, game and as you mentioned at the end of the day you only have a couple of winners um so how is how do you evaluate risk what is your perception about risk and uh, especially with respect to some of the investments that you make i mean early stage you just you have to de-risk yourself rather than you know evaluate risk because it is a extremely risky proposition so you know whatever you do the best you can do is to de-risk yourself uh and you know some of the things we said to de-risk is what we do you know obviously the heart and soul of our early stage investing is the entrepreneur we spend a lot of time with them we have some of the points i raised earlier the basic matrices uh, matrices are wrong word the basic dna that we look at within the entrepreneur uh, you know we receive those dna those background are fulfilled their track record their ability to uh, sustained downturns whether it is in their earlier corporate life or earlier ventures they've done together the co-founding team how they have worked together what their uh, uh, you know chemistry is that's very important for us whether uh, they complement each other that's also very important often co-founders are almost identical to each other and that leads to a problem whether they really complement each other uh these are some of the things we do to uh, from a from a softer skill set point if you will to uh, to 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 de-risk ourselves then of course you know we obviously some of the business risks we work on is the size of the market should be big enough you know often you come across brilliant ideas uh, very good teams but it's too niche and while they may be good uh, lifestyle businesses they may be good uh, businesses for strategics they they are not businesses for vcs so 
we stay away from niche good businesses uh, nothing wrong with those businesses but they are not visible and uh, thirdly of course we look at the core technology that is there because we invest mostly in tech businesses so we do do a deep dive on the technology on the core product skill set and also the roadmap of the product that the teams come up with so i think these are some of the de risking factors we have akash so but what are the challenges that you think you face or any other vc in general faces when they're evaluating companies uh, in the b2b sector versus those in the b2c sector it's totally different i mean the two sectors are chalk and cheese so b2c fundamentally is about the size of the market uh, about the you know potential scale up that will be the you know who the competition is where within the b2c sector uh, where is the market development because b2c almost in all countries especially in emerging countries like india is a winner takes all market so already if the first two or three players are established i would go to the extent of saying two not even the third there is no room for a third player so even right. if you fund a potentially good matrix oriented third player you know they will die out because there will be no future investments for them coming through in the b2c so b2c it's a very different early stage investor you have to catch them young in a particular area and you have to have the capability either directly through the fund or through associate funds to keep pumping them till they come to a you know scale uh and therefore from our perspective although we do have one or two b2cs uh, within our through a first fund we now have consciously taken a call to stay away from b2c b2b on the other hand is very different and uh, even the nature of the founders are very different b2c founders tend to be first time entrepreneurs uh you know people who have grown up with the digital world so i'm not saying millennials but comparatively much younger founders uh b2b founders tend to be folks who understand a particular industry so that per se means they would have had you know substantial time spent within the industry so they would tend to be older founders and being older founders there's a different set of problems they have but different set of uh different set of uh lesser of the early st- uh, younger founder challenges that they face so so it's a very different investing st- style and investing methodology you have for a b2c and a b2b that was very interesting and then shifting gears a little bit now um one of the things that came up in my research is that Unicorn takes um, both seats, and as value-generating investors, what do you see to be the essential role that an investor plays as a board member, and how does that really shape the company and the future of the startup itself? So, I think there are two parts uh, to the question of being a board member. One is the fiduciary part. which is extremely extremely important because startups tend to do things uh, on the fly uh, that's the nature of the business you know you tend 
to uh, do things in the shortcut, not for uh, not for lack of uh, primarily because of lack of understanding, not for any uh, other reasons. So as a board member, that's where you come in. You sort of guide through all the fiduciary processes and ensure that all the compliance and other aspects are being met so that later, if the company is to be a success and there are future rounds, they don't come and bite you in the wrong place. That's one part of it. But whether you're a board member or you're a board observer or you're just involved, the advisory part is extremely, extremely key. And that is where uh, you play a role much beyond being a mere board member. That is the part where you have to get under the uh, the uh, skin of the business, understand the business, have a chat with a constant chat with the uh, founder to understand what his problems are. And that's something where I think we are very strong at. And uh, that's something which I think today uh, in the startup world in India, Unicorn is recognized as because we have we spent substantial amount of time with our entrepreneurs, not with the uh, you know beating stick, saying that this hasn't been achieved, that hasn't been achieved, but trying to understand with them why it hasn't been achieved. And more often than not, you know these are very little reasons. These are very small reasons. Some of it is in the head of the entrepreneur because of which things are not achieved. And that is where you need to be constantly in dialogue with them to show them that you are a facilitator for them. You are someone who's by their side rather than, you know, acting like you told me so type of scenario. Right. And as you previously mentioned, um, some of these startups um, have founders who are extremely young or on the other hand, they could be companies which are run by people who are probably running them for the first time. So as somebody who takes board seats, is there a best board meeting structure or a format that you could recommend to anybody who is listening to this podcast, especially from the founder's side? I think it's a good question, actually, because sometimes in early stage, because the board is so integrally woven on day-to-day operations, that board meetings tend to be just another meeting, you know, because everyone is aware of everything. And that is where things often fail. I think the structure of the board meeting has to be a very formal uh, environment, formal presentation, even if everyone knows everything, which is more often the case than not in early stage, uh, in early stage companies. Uh, Therefore, coming to it, I think it's always good to have a formal structure of a meeting, you know, quarterly review, what was said in the previous meeting, recap of that, those meetings. And even if the VC is uh, involved in the business, you know, to actually present to them in a very formal way what was said, what was done. Often, it even if they are not board members, but it is good to have board observers as people who are not involved within the framework, but people who bring in much more of a, uh, a domain expertise to, uh, for the growing companies, and they add a lot more value. So, you know, a VC at the end of the day will be very generic, but there are folks who are partic- from particular domain that the company is operating in who can come in as board observers, 
you know, and steer the company much more, and they should be a part of these board meetings. I also think that, uh, you know, a lot of board meeting the founders themselves do, uh, which is fine, but there has to be the whoever is the CFO or even the, you know, in the early stages, the accountant of the company has to be present because at the end of the day, the it is all about a feel of the numbers rather than anything else. Right. That's a very interesting take. I, I like the part where you mentioned either the accountant or the CFO has to be present so that everybody around, including the board members and the investors, have an idea as to what's happening on the numbers side of things. You know, they say oftentimes that VCs are the reason behind the success and they're also the reason behind um, the failures of startups. So from your experience, what kind of diligence would you like founders to be conducting before they add VCs to the cap, to their cap table? I think uh, the founders must themselves spend time to understand whether they are ready to take in VC money because taking in a VC money has a certain constraints. Often in an emerging market like India, uh, founders do think that there isn't much of a difference between an angel and a VC. And while they are very comfortable taking angel money, they think that the VC will act in a way similar to that of an angel, which it is not. A VC is an institutional investor, they have their own compliances. They have their own investors. They cannot take decisions like an angel can because for an angel, it's their own money. So this understanding the difference between an angel and an early stage VC is very important for early stage founders uh, before they can even embark on the path of taking a VC. The second point, uh, which is uh, important uh, is to understand the nature of the VC. I mean, today in India, knowledge is ubiquitous. You know, people do know the stories, the inside stories, the good, bad, ugly of all the VCs. Uh, you know, directly or indirectly speaking to the portfolio companies is important. Uh, speaking to other peer in the market is important. Speaking to uh, other entrepreneurs who have failed to get funding from those VCs is important and I think good founders do do their own due diligence uh, just as the VCs do the due diligence on the founders. Well staying on the topic of fundraising I am very curious to understand if there's any such thing as raising too much money. You know it's a tough one to answer you know <laughs> as an entrepreneur i feel going back to my entrepreneur days i felt that i was at my best as an entrepreneur when i had cushion of money i wasn't scrabbling for money i had a clear visibility of money spent for a couple of years but not so much money that you know, I was coming up with a business plan to justify the money. So I've been through that cycle as an entrepreneur. Uh, and therefore, whenever in my cycle, whenever twice the situation came where I did raise decent rounds and I had more money than the uh, 
than the operating business plan I had. So I came up with a business plan to justify the money I had and I naturally lost that part of the money and then started again rebuilding from the monies I had left. This is an honest confession of an entrepreneur. So it's very difficult to answer how much money is too much money and whether if you have too much money, you should take it or not. Sometimes I think if money is available, you have to take it because, you know, it just dries up when you need it. Right. Because sometimes it's nothing to do with the state of the business. It is also to do a lot with the macro. Your business might be doing better, but the macro has changed. You know, the VC's notion about that particular world has changed. So it's a tough one to answer, you know, and I think it's uh, horses for courses rather than a flat this way or that answer. Well, the flip side to that um, is what can entrepreneurs do if they are unable to fill the round? Is there a strategy of going one step back to go two steps forward? And you can speak to that from your experience as an entrepreneur and as an investor. I think uh, I think entrepreneurs, uh, when they're raising money, they must know how much they want to raise. And if it is, uh, you know, 10, 20, 30 percent shortfall, I think there's always room to go back to the the guys who've committed to say this is what it is. And if they can bridge in great, if they can't make good with what you have. But if the shortfall is, let's say, you know, you've only done 20 percent of what you wanted, then it's then it's a non-starter. So again, these are dynamic situations uh, with the existing guys who are coming in with your existing investors and the entrepreneur. So one has to see where it is at that point in time before taking a view. But if you're 60, 70%, even I said 60, 70% of what you had set out to do, you can always descale your plan or try to fill up the gap but not if it's the other way about. Ah, I like that. It's very interesting. Um, now, we were moving into a segment which is very similar to a rapid fire where I want to try and understand more about you as an investor. And I'll start off with this. And something that I like to learn about when I, when I speak to investors is, is, is there something that you'd like to change about venture capital in India? Uh, I think the market is maturing. Uh, as of now, there's a bunch of generalists. Uh, most VCs tend to be generalists. I think uh, uh, what will happen, what will soon start happening is uh, you'll start having a lot more sectoral VCs. In India, sectoral VCs are very few, unlike in other parts of the world. Uh, it's also driven by a fact because the sector, because still it's a very small market compared to the US or even some parts of Europe. So once the sectors themselves become big, you'll start to have sectoral VCs. I think sectoral VCs are a big play within India. Secondly, again, within the VC community, you tend to have different, uh, uh, different structured VC uh, folks who are there who primarily do only secondaries, folks who are there who uh, tend to do, you know, top-up rounds. Those type of VCs are still not there in India. 
but they're all starting to come through. Therefore, as I said right in the beginning, I think uh, the market will evolve drastically in India, change a lot. Uh, and we've just skimmed the surface from that perspective. And what's your opinion on accountability and sustainable investing? I think uh, sustainable investing uh, is something which most of the funds any which way are, are, are doing. And, you know, uh, what exactly you mean by sustainable investing, the terms have to be are getting defined more and more. I know at least in within our portfolio, three or four of the businesses we have invested, we've never looked at, we did not look at the, these investments from a prism of, from a prism of sustainability or prism of ESG, but the funds who later came and invested in them uh, at later stage were all ESG funds. So, you know, we looked at a business from a fintech perspective they looked at it from a financial inclusion perspective. We looked at the business from a robotics perspective, robotics as a SaaS perspective. Someone else looked at it from a, you know, good for the society perspective. So, you know, the, these perspectives and lines are pretty blurred and getting more and more blurred because technology is a driver for making change right across. So what a one VC might look at it from one particular point of view, someone else will look at it from some other point of view. Interesting. And one of the most underrated qualities of VCs is their ability to raise funds. And as a fund operator and manager yourself, talk to me about the challenges of fundraising. Fundraising is always, always a massive challenge. Uh, you know, whether you're a first time VC, multiple times VC, because, uh, because of the nature of the game. Uh, obviously, you know, as you evolve as a VC uh, and you are, your track record is there to speak for yourself more. Uh, and as people rightly say within our industry, it's the best showcase for us is the portfolio companies we have. Uh, but apart from that, people also want to see how a VC firm is evolving and maturing. As I keep saying that the growth of the VCs is also like a startup. The VC firm itself is a startup. You know, you have a couple of partners who come and start it off uh, with a couple of other people joining them. That's the first fund. The second fund, you obviously have some of these people coming up to become partners, operating partners. People don't want you to s replicate what you did, but to do a lot more of that. So you need to add a lot of other dimensions to the business. So as the as is the case with startups who are raising money and they have to evolve themselves, so also VC firms themselves have to evolve and grow, not just be dependent on a couple of GPs and keep on raising monies uh, you know, every few years, even if the portfolio is good because the LP world is also maturing a lot. They also want to see uh, growth within the GPs. They also want to back GPs who are very clear on the future because, you know, seven years is a long, long time in the technology industry and you can't right. go back with the same story after seven years. 
That's that's very true. Um, and especially in today's world where things are changing so rapidly, if you're if you're some if you're an investor investing in consumer markets, then it's even more difficult for you to go back and justify um, to your to your to your LPs. Um, and and lastly, I wanted to ask you this question. Um, probably something that some of our listeners would really find very interesting, especially coming from a VC. What is your advice to startups who are fundraising? I think the first advice is uh, be sure that you're in a frame of mind to take VC money, as I touched upon earlier. And if you are, whether the stage your company is the right stage in the sense that uh, have you, I mean, today, very few people, unless you have brilliant ideas uh, or you're from some of the uh, institute labs, get ideas at that earlier stage. So, you know, see where you are in the stage of the company, see whether you're mentally ready to have a VC as a partner in your growth story. Uh, and then, you know, get on, get on with it. Uh, you know, do the plan, get on with it. Again, a point I had mentioned earlier, if you are having the right VC or the right set of VCs, don't nickel and dime for a few percentage points because there's only the beginning of the journey. Fundraises really the beginning of the journey. Most entrepreneurs think that it's the end of a journey, but it's the start of the journey. So, you know, it's it's a long haul and commit and raising VCs and co- gives you a different sense of responsibility because you owe it to them to give you returns. Uh, so, yeah, get be in the right frame of mind. I think that's wonderful advice and something that I really enjoyed listening to was your earlier take on portfolio and how you guys think of it as an art and I think that's one of the biggest takeaways that for me personally that uh, resonated especially since we as a VC firm here as well spend a lot of time in supporting our company so I see that being a value add outside of capital so thank you so much for your insights Bhaskar it's been a wonderful time speaking to you and trying to understand more about the VC industry and also give some more perspective from Unicorn and and what you guys have been doing for the last uh, few years. So really appreciate all of your thoughts and uh, inputs. Thanks, Akash. Good to talk to you. Well, that was another great episode, guys. I'm incredibly fortunate to have all of these investors coming on the show and speaking very candidly about the venture ecosystem in India. Thank you again, Bhaskar. It was a pleasure. Well, if you enjoyed that as much as I did, I'd really urge you to subscribe to the show. And while you're at it, leave me a review and a rating so that others can discover it as well. Tune in again next week for another episode. And until then, stay safe, guys, and keep hustling.